I'm going to, uh, the next two weeks, be dealing with a Thanksgiving theme as this unique and wonderful American holiday approaches called Thanksgiving. I'll be in Psalm 118 as we think about being a thankful people and realizing and grappling with what the Lord has done for us. But let me set up what I want to say with kind of a biographical statement, um, just personally speaking. And I, I, I think that it is that when the church starts advocating certain candidates, I think that's bad, a bad place to go. But, but, but I do think that when cultural issues clash with God's revealed truth, we are duty-bound under the Lordship of Christ to speak out with grace and with dignity, but to speak. To let your, you know, Colossians says, let your language always be with salt. You know, we, we speak graciously. Uh, so, so you look at biblical certain issues and the clarity of them, and you say, is that a 1 to a 10? I'm always asking my family and friends, how are you doing 1 to 10? How's your marriage 1 to 10? And your wife always rates you lower than you do. Just take that for granted. Um, how's your health 1 to 10? That type of thing. So you, we, in our culture, we have a colossal struggle going on regarding the sanctity of human life. I believe the Bible underscores that life is a precious gift from God. Um, the Bible says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so I, I have no place to go. I, I just believe the Bible teaches that life is sacred. In this last election, we had one party who affirmed that and another party who did not at all. I mean, 180 degrees the other way, basically. I believe the Bible teaches very strongly that for the flourishing of culture, God has instituted marriage. And marriage is to be between one man and one woman, not one man and two women, or one woman and two men, or one man and one man, one man and one woman. In our recent election, we had one party that affirmed that and one party that did not. And the party that would disagree with, I think, Scripture won. I was very depressed Tuesday night. I didn't sleep well. I got up depressed. I just thought, man, what, what's going on? And uh, went downstairs early in the morning, got a big mug of tea. And uh, in addition to that, the day after the election was my birthday. <laughs> yeah, well, 59. 59. And you know, just listen. So, so next year I'll be 60. Some of you sent cards. I know who you are and I appreciate you. And I know those of you that didn't. I, I, I mean. <laughs> but just next year, let's just act like it doesn't exist. 60 just seems to me, it's just an old number. It's, I mean, and then you talk to these young people say, oh, Pastor Brown, be comforted. 60 is a new 40. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> 60 is still 60. I don't, care, I don't care how you count. Even if you use a Mayan calendar, it's still 60. So, so you, go, you get up and you're, you're discouraged and then it's your birthday and you're on the down, way on the downhill of life. And so I, 
so I was sitting there, and I thought, you know, I just, uh, and, and it, oftentimes, usually, the vast majority of cases, I'll begin my study time in the morning by reading Charles Spurgeon. I, I thought about my age, and I thought, you know, I, am, I have outlived many of my heroes. Charles Spurgeon died at age 58. John Calvin, 54. Jonathan Edwards, 54. Now, Abraham became a daddy at age 100, so maybe that's my goal. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, so you, you're sitting there, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I've got all this. And I pick, up, I pick up November 7th, morning and evening, and it is just glorious. I put it in the, in the worship guide. Let me just read the, the part of it to you. Spurgeon writes, Spurgeon died in 1892, British pastor. He says in Isaiah 49, it says, Behold, I have engraven you on the palms of my hand. And he writes down halfway through the first paragraph, The Lord's loving word of rebuke should make us blush. He cries, How can I have forgotten you when I have engraven you on the palms of my hands? How dare you doubt my thoughts for you when I have placed your memory on my very flesh? On down. He never fails. <clears throat> He is never a dry well. He is never as a setting sun, a passing meteor, or a melting vapor. And yet we are as continually troubled with anxieties and disturbed with fears as if our God were a mirage in the desert. God doesn't merely say, I have engraven your name, but I have engraven you. Your very person, your image, your circumstances, your sins. Everything about you, all that concerns you, will you ever say again that your God has forsaken you when he has engraven you on the palms of his hands? <laughs> well, the, you know, the cloud lifted a little bit. Yeah. And I thought about this statement by Christ in Luke chapter 10, where, where verse 17, Christ says, he's, he sent his men out two by two to preach and to proclaim the coming kingdom. And they've had incredible success. Listen to the narrative. It says, then the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Christ replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, however, now here's the guy. Man, this is, this is success in preaching. I mean, this is success. Demons submit to us in the name of Christ. There's authority and power. Christ has unleashed his power in these men. And he says, however, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Wow. Re rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So, so you know, let me just say this too. <clears throat> this general election, you know, I, I pledge to pray for our president, President Obama, for the flourishing of his home, for the protection of his marriage, for the well-being of his daughters. He is my president. And we're commanded in Scripture to pray for those in authority. I also pray that God will change his mind. Wouldn't it be something? Wouldn't it be something for the president to say, you know, I've been, 
I've been dealing with an issue. I really believe life is sacred. And I just repent of, of voting time after time for life to be cast away. I was wrong. Man, let me tell you something. So, so I'm going to pray for the president, and you should too. No matter how you voted this past Tuesday. So, so let's, let's go to our passage this morning. It's, it's uh, Psalm 118. We're going to be in this psalm the next two Sundays. The psalmist begins with a thesis statement in verse 1. Verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. His thesis statement, the Lord is good. His love endures forever. And then he breaks down the celebration to three groups. I think he says, let Israel, the covenant community, let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. In the second group, let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. And I think the house of Aaron, of course, refers to the priests, the called out ones, and our own understanding of this passage. I believe he's saying that, that in, the, in, the, in the beginning of the victory procession, may we have the officers and the leaders in the church the people who are really familiar with the wonder of the atonement of Christ, the glory of God's revelation in his triune glory. Let, let, let the house of Aaron say, and then he says, verse 4, let those who fear the Lord say his love, steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord, let the nations of the earth, those who've been grafted into the covenant community of Israel in this particular time frame. Let the nations of the earth proclaim his love endures forever. They just proclaim it. <clears throat> the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures and it endures forever. And then he gives a bi- biographical statement, verses five to seven. Out of my distress, and we're often in distress, aren't we? Many shapes and forms. At age 14, you're in distress because of one thing. Then as you grow older, it gets more and more daunting. Out of my distress, whether you're sick or you're heartbroken, you have relational issues with your kids or with your spouse, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. So he says this, I was distressed. And and brothers and sisters, when we're distressed, we can take two paths. One path is in my distressed spirit, my downcast spirit, I went into deeper despair. And you live there. In my distress, I went into despair. Or in my distress, I called out to the Lord. You say, God, give me your perspective. You give me, Lord, give me your understanding. Give me your knowledge. And in this particular instance, when he called out to the Lord, he said, the Lord answered me and he set me free. You're distressed. I don't know which way to turn. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to call out to the Lord. He will answer me. He will give me his perspective. He will set me free. In John 8, Christ talks about being set free. He says to to his men, he says, if you continue my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When you run to Christ, you're set free because the scripture says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Romans 8. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And that's why in this uh, worship guide, I, I, I've got, <clears throat> I, it's just my favorite question of any catechism question. It comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, 1583. It, it says, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong unto my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his shed blood has fully satisfied for all of my sins and delivered me from the power or the tyranny of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. I belong to the living God. My salvation is purchased. Heaven awaits. And in the present context, not, not a hair can fall from my head without my heavenly Father's knowledge. <clears throat> Therefore, he says, all things must be subservient to my walk with Christ, my salvation. So I, I read that, and, and I read verses, you know, these, these verses. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called. He answered and he set me free. And, and then I go to this passage, the, the, these verses, I'm just, this is amazing. I, I go to, to verse 14 to 16, it says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation <clears throat> are in the tents of the righteous. Yeah. Glad songs of salvation are in the homes of God's people. Glad songs of salvation run through the marriages of people married under the banner of Christ. Glad songs of salvation run through the hearts of college students who are in Christ Jesus. And, and the song goes something like this. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. In my distress, I called. He answered. He set me free. How I need God's perspective. God doesn't waste anything. Let me show you this man. I just read a book about this man his name is Bill Wallace. He's <clears throat> from Tennessee. Uh, went to the University of Tennessee, then went to medical school at the University of Tennessee, studied to be a surgeon. 
uh, felt as if the Lord was leading him to become a um, medical surgeon overseas. And so he went out with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, went to southern China, and never married. He um, loved the people of China, struggled mightily with the language. People laughed at his lack of proficiency in Chinese, hard worker. World War II hits. Uh, the Japanese come into his part of China. He really gathers up part of the hospital where he worked, and he went upriver 200 miles out of the reach of the Japanese and just ministered in the back country of China. During the Second World War, he came back after the, Jap the Japanese were defeated, and there was a Chinese, as you know, civil war, and the communists took over, and for the first year and a half, the communist government saw the, how he was being used and how the people loved him, and, but eventually they became more and more radical, and one day they came in and they seized him and took him to prison and accused him of being a, a spy for Harry S. Truman, 1950 51. They continued to beat him, and uh, he finally signed a ridiculous confession. And then on the morning of February the 10th of 1951, um, he, was, he, he was killed. They made it appear that he had tried, they had committed suicide, but there were contusions and bruises all over his body, and he died on February the 10th, 1951. And so you... You, you read about this 43-year-old who died, <clears throat> and 50 years after that, there was an article in a Christian magazine that said it's been 50 years since Bill Wallace was, was murdered. What an injustice, many said at the time, and in the decades since, we still say, what an injustice. What a tragedy. What a waste. This is this injustice, yes, waste, far from it. God never wastes anything. You think about this man who was martyred, and you think about how God used that in, in some way. I don't understand. I don't understand. To, to prosper and grow the church of that part of China gave the believers courage. And we know now that today the church in China is a runaway, growing, evangelical, gospel-centered freight train. It's just amazing. God, God doesn't waste anything. Bill Wallace. And so I, and, and then, you know, just as, as I, when I was dealing with this theme, I always think about one of my heroes, Jonathan Edwards. And very, very quickly, uh, Edwards was uh, brilliant beyond words, um, pastored in the same church for 23 years. He was in, uh, the leader of the First Great Awakening from 1740 to 1742, wonderfully used of God, married to a woman named Sarah. They had 11 children, eight girls and three boys who all survived infancy, which was unheard of in those days. 
pastor there for 23 years. He came to the conviction that he held for years but hadn't said much about it, that the Lord's Supper is only for believers. And we go, well, of course it is. The Bible clearly teaches that. But the people in the community didn't like that because it kind of, it kind of made a wall of separation between people in the community who were followers of Christ and those who were not. And we say, well, that's, that's the way it goes. <clears throat> After 23 years of labor and ministering valiantly and biblically, um, the church men, women couldn't vote, the church men voted 200 to 23 to kick out Jonathan Edwards. And I just, I go, what? And they did. 200 to 23. Uh, instead of becoming bitter, he, he's, he takes a position in the wilderness where he ministered to uh, Native Americans, he, Indians. He loved them and preached them and wrote his greatest books during those seven years. He was called to be the president of Princeton. Um, he accepts it after writing a letter saying, I just want you to know at times I have a melancholy spirit. And he says, I want you to know that I, I, I am somewhat deficient in algebra and higher mathematics. <laughs> but he gave his valedictorian address at Yale in Latin. So he, he, he was, which happens, you know, at Citadel every year as well. <laughs> so anyway, so he, he goes to Princeton. Uh, it's 1958. He's... He's a scientist. He wants to be inoculated for smallpox. And he was, but he developed smallpox. And then a few weeks later, he dies on March the 5th. Right before he died, he wrote this letter. And I'm going to show you another letter. He says, uh, he writes to his daughter, Lucy. Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that such an uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope that she'll be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. Now, that, that's the way they wrote then. What he's saying is tell your mama I love her with all of my heart. And I pray that she'll be strengthened under the hand of, by the hand of God in this trial. And then he says this to his daughter. And as to my children, all 11 of you, you are now left to be fatherless, which I hope <clears throat> will be an inducement to you to seek a father, capital F, who will never fail you. Who writes that stuff? People who have a belief that God is God. And nothing happens in our life that doesn't come through his hands. So his wife hears about it, and she sits down, and she writes a letter. This is one of the most precious letters I've ever read. It's three sentences, four sentences. It's got more theology in it than most systematic theologies. Let me just show it to you. Just. So Sarah Edwards writes this letter, listen, to Esther Burr, her daughter, whose husband had died three years before. And she has a little baby she's nursing named Aaron, who became vice president. And so she writes Esther Burr, her daughter. Esther never got this letter. And that Esther dies of dysentery before the letter arrives. It's amazing. Four months later, three days before 
Jonathan Edwards' birthday, or five months later, three days before his birthday, Sarah Edwards dies at the age of 48. Some say she died of a broken heart. Some have said she couldn't bear to go to that first birthday without her husband. By the way, she was known as a drop-dead gorgeous woman, just as an aside. So this is what Sarah Edwards says to her daughter. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. It's a dark cloud. We're not going to, it's a dark cloud, but God is good. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of correction and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long, but my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and left to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. Now, who writes stuff like that? Now, if I were Sarah Edwards, I'd say, God, good grief. My husband served 23 years, the same group of people, and they kicked him out because he stood for truth. We've been in the backwash of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, with, with Native Americans living on nothing seven years finally we get a break and he's going to Princeton I can have you know sit down suppers with people that I can talk to and you take him come on no 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 these things amaze me or think about William Cooper who struggled with depression all of his adult life and was a great friend of John Newton and was probably severely bipolar. And he wrote this hymn, it's entitled God Moves in Mysterious Ways. He says, just two stands, he says, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. God doesn't waste anything. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Who writes stuff like that? It's people who believe that God is good and he's holy. And even though he covers us with a dark cloud, and even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? For he's with us. Because his rod and his staff, they comfort us. He prepares a table before us in the, in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil. Our cup runneth over. See, you, you get older. You get older. You deal with loved ones dying. But 1 Corinthians 15 says, it's okay. It's okay, he says, because Paul says, because of the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection, we know who wins. We know who wins. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, just very quickly, he says, we have, verse 7, this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and, and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Listen, we get hard-pressed. 
but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we never throw in the towel of despair. I'm frequently perplexed. Lord, why? 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 He says we're, we're struck down but never destroyed. We get up off the mat by the grace of God. I was watching a perfectly horrible movie a couple weeks ago. I'm going to tell you the name of it because I don't want you to get confused and go get it. It's so bad. I'm, like, I'm not a big science fiction fan. I'm, I'm, even the Leonardo DiCaprio movie two years ago, what was it? Everybody just went crazy over it. Inception. I didn't even like Inception. I know that's scandalous, but I didn't like Inception. <laughs> I figured it out the first 10 minutes. And I'm not that smart. So I had to watch it three times to get it. I said, man, one time was enough. <laughs> Too much. Anyway, so I was watching this movie, and it's about, again, it's science fiction. It's not true, so don't get upset. People go to a foreign planet that's just like this as far as atmospheric pressure, and they discover ancient civilization that supposedly made the men and women on earth. And there's a lady wearing a cross, and, and it talks about how, you know, you really believe that. And it says, well, my daddy gave me the cross. I wear the cross. And, and so you're ready to renounce your faith. And she says something inane like this. I didn't want to go back and get it word for word because I didn't want to subject myself to that. But she said, you know, my faith is true because for me it is true. That's baloney. Our faith is true because Jesus is eternal God. He became a man. He died on a real cross with real wood and real nails. And he had a real body that rose from the dead that was observed by at least 500 men, Paul says. And he ascended into heaven. And one day he will call history to a close. It's true because it happened. When I was a child, we had a hymn that said, he lives. I mean, some of you are going to be mad about this. I'm sorry. I'm preaching today. You're not. It is entitled, He Lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me in long life's narrow way. You know, and I can still see song leaders leading it. And He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me now how I know He lives. See? Lives. And here's, here's the refrain. He lives within my heart. Well... No, that's part of it. But I mean, he lives because he is. <laughs> you see, he lives because God became a man and lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose victorious over death. See, I know who wins. I've read. I skipped ahead. I read the end of the book. My son was in China for two years and working with the organization, and his boss was a man that. We're in partnership with who's in agricultural work and is a wonderful, wonderful, godly man. Been there 20 years and has served the people of that part of China with his Canadian bride with great, great passion. And he's a big Gamecock fan. My son is a Clemson fan. He went to Citadel like I did. And Clemson people can be above the interstate immaturity that marks the rivalry between South Carolina. We can just pull for Clemson and be, 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 be happy about it. I don't understand that unless you talk about Furman. Then I don't think I, I can understand that. But anyway, my son is a, is a big Clemson fan. So they would tape the games. They're, they're, let's say they're 12 hours ahead of us. 
they would take the games, either the Clemson or South Carolina, and they would watch it at breakfast at 7.30, huge breakfast made by his wife, this man's wife, and they would watch the game and enjoy it and, and, and have fun. Well, 2009, Clemson played South Carolina. The kickoff was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, which means it was 2 o'clock in the morning, okay, in China. And my son's boss says to him, you know, let's watch the game together at 7.15, 7.30, then we'll go to church. And my son said, I thought, Tim always gets up and watches it in real time. He does. He sets his clock. He's, he's a big fan. So 7.15, my son goes charging over to see the big game. Knocks on the door, big heaping breakfast. Tim says, come on in, man. Let's sit down. Let's watch the game. Turned it on. If you remember the game, first play, first play, this happened. C.J. Spiller gets the kickoff and goes 88 yards for a touchdown. It's in Columbia. And, you know, you're thinking, if you're a Clemson fan, here we go. South Carolina gets the ball and drives down the field, and Garcia, as he was accustomed to doing, throws an interception. Clemson gets the ball. They're going down the field like a steamroller. Nobody's stopping them. They're going for a touchdown. They fumble. A guy named Eric Norwood picks it up and runs 40 yards down. And during this whole time, the kickoff, Zach's buddy, his boss, goes, what a marvelous kick return. And Zach goes, marvelous kick return? He says, C.J. is probably the best running back in college football. Just very complimentary, which is not the way he usually acts. South Carolina gets the ball. Again, they're going down the field. They're going to go ahead 14 to nothing. He says, you know, he says, and of course Clemson does. He says, you know, Clemson can really move that ball. My son's going, oh, come on. Pretty soon, it's 17 to 7, South Carolina. Final score, South Carolina 34, Clemson 17. My son said, Dad, I realized about five minutes in that Tim had already watched the game. He was pulling, he was, he was being gracious, but he had already watched. He knew what was going to happen. So, you know, 88-yard kickoff return, isn't that a beautiful athletic play? Because <laughs> he knew it was going to be 34-17. He had seen the end of the game. That's us. That's, I'm telling you, the living God wins. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. God wastes nothing. Nothing happens in my life or your life apart from the glorious, wonder-working power of God. Nothing happens in my life that doesn't come through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. What, what is your only comfort in life and death? I am not my own. But I belong unto my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his shed blood has fully satisfied for all of my sins. And he, he has released me from the tyranny of the devil. And he so preserves my life that not a hair can fall from my head without my Father's knowledge. Wow. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. 
of worship. Thank you that you set apart the Lord's day for your people to be refreshed and to be energized for the week of ministry ahead. For us to receive fresh infillings of your power through the Holy Spirit so that we might be salt and light in our communities, in our jobs, in our relationships, in our families. So work in us, Lord. I, I, I do pray that as we hit areas of distress, that we would call out to you and you would answer us and free us. And as you free us by the work of Christ, I, I pray that we would cry out, the Lord has become my strength and my song. He is my salvation. And we would say, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Lord, fill us with glad songs of salvation. Fill us with the gladness of the Lord. Help us to not grow weary in daily living. Help us to not cast in the towel of despair. Lord, we're perplexed on many occasions, on many turns of time, but we trust you. So blessed be your name this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.